You are listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. Welcome back to the Regeneration Rising podcast. I'm Taylor Mulia, and today we are doing a very special episode. We're having a partnership with the National Young Farmers Coalition and their Land Advocacy Fellowship. This is a fellowship, it's two years long, where current and aspiring young farmers and ranchers build their skills and create opportunities to tell their stories to the greater public and lawmakers in office to hopefully influence the 2023 Farm Bill. Today, we will speak to Benu Amun-Ra, Tanisha Diggs, and Oscar Vital. These are three fellows in the Denver area who will talk about their journeys in agriculture, large barriers they are facing, and some solutions for young and especially BIPOC farmers and ranchers that could be written into the next farm bill. So thanks for joining us and enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, you guys. I'm super excited for our conversation today. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Taylor. Good morning, panel. Hey, Taylor. Thanks for having us and really appreciate the opportunity to speak on these issues. So first, let's go around. Um, We'll just do a little introduction. Let's say your name, where you live, and the earliest experience you can remember being interested or fascinated by agriculture. And um, Banu, why don't we start with you? Oh, great. So good morning. My name is Benu Amun-Ra, and I live actually on the unceded lands of the Arapaho, Apache, Ute, Cheyenne, and Lakota Sioux, also known as Aurora, Colorado. And my earliest memory or fascination with agriculture actually came from when I grew up in South Korea with my mother. She used to take me out to the fields while she would farm because she's a generational farmer. And uh, she would harvest all the wonderful, fresh cultural foods that she would later cook for us. And then, of course, later when we moved around, because I come from a military family and we moved from base to base. So my mother would always find a way to grow a garden no matter where we lived, just so that we could have access to those cultural foods. And of course, growing up and helping grow food really made an impact on me. And and it motivates me to continue that tradition of growing culturally relevant food and increasing biodiversity and healing through generative stewardship. So as they say, teach a man to fish. So it goes for a farmer. (laughs) Oscar, why don't we pass it to you? Yeah, my name is Oscar Vital. I currently live in Denver, Colorado. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. And the earliest memory that I have in agriculture is not being in it, but observing it. I was driving north up Highway 5 in California and being mesmerized by the miles of, you know, fields that I would see and to see the rows passing you by while you're going so fast in a car. it's, It's like a visual, you know, spectacle kind of thing. Um, And then all of a sudden you see little spots of people out there and 
it's quite amazing. And it makes you wonder about like, what are the conditions and what are they experiencing being in the middle of this, you know, ginormous field? Yeah, that's crazy. I know. I feel like everybody should go to like Yuma or the Central Valley at some point and just drive through and just see agriculture on a large scale happening. It is wild. Yeah. It's like the amount of like cabbage they can cut and toss into the truck. It's so cool, but also very concerning. Seeing it, smelling it, you get a lot of the somatic parts of it. Um, There's this one stretch on Highway 5 that at least for 10 miles, at least, you can already smell the odor of the dairy farm um, that's next to the highway before you even see it and even long after you, you you pass it. Tanisha, go for it. Well, my name is Tanisha Diggs, and I live currently in Colorado, and I've been here about 20 years. But what got me interested in agriculture was a spark a long time ago when my father decided that he was going to grow his favorite things in our backyard, which were collard greens and tomatoes. And so I remember being his helper planting the tomato seeds and the collard greens and so excited to see them actually come out of the ground and actually produce fruit that I was elated. And so for seven years, I actually helped with that project and I knew that I had some type of connection with the earth. Mother nature was more than just someone that needed a steward. So I figured if I stepped into that role, just doing the gardening thing, that maybe I could be of help. I didn't know that in the future, I would definitely be in the realm of agriculture or what I consider to be in the field of agriculture, just working with animals. So I also, I want to kind of dig into that and dig into all three of your stories, but I'll start with Tanisha. So you know, you kind of mentioned your background is in the veterinary medicine world. You're from Detroit originally, and then you spent half your life in Colorado. But so with your veterinary background, your passions lie more in agricultural production, particularly poultry. So tell us more about your passion for poultry. Well, I served in the veterinary community in a capacity as a veterinary technician for 15 years. I love animals and I care about their welfare. That's why I chose this career. However, I felt a calling to do more than just serve one population. Poultry spoke to me the loudest because I did some research and I found that small producers didn't have a place in the market since the larger producers monopolize the market and make all the profits. So I began taking classes to test the waters to see if it was a fit for me. The first class I actually took, I was hooked. (laughs) I really was. I was was hooked. I'm like, okay, I want to do this all the time. So I began crafting a letter to Tyson Foods, letting them know that I will be coming for their number one spot as a top poultry producer. I'm not mailed that letter yet, but when I do get my operation up and running, they need to be afraid. Tell us more about that. Like, what's your vision for for poultry production? Do you do you see yourself running something in Colorado? Where would it be? What kind of what would it look like? Kind of paint a picture for us. 
So I I see myself more like the the smaller producers. Like I know that producers and poultry exist here in Colorado. I do want to be in Colorado for the fact that I grew my family here. I put down roots here and I feel as if this is the community that need me the most. And so that's why I stayed in Colorado. If I wanted to go and produce in a top producer state like Iowa or someplace like that, I would have moved there. But Colorado seemed to have needed this space to be etched out for them. And so I want to be that producer for this state. And so what it looks like for me would be, I would be the go-to person for the small producer. So say they have a farm and they have chickens that they need to be produced so that they can actually get into the the actual market or restaurant where you can't do that if your chickens haven't been processed through a USDA facility. And so my hope is to open a facility where the small producers can bring their birds and I can process for them. But at the same time, with etching out a space for me, I can also do the producing that I'm going to do for layers and broilers to make sure that that gap is filled. Because right now, like I said, the the larger companies, they etch us out of the playing field. It's, it's not level at all. And it's, it's not fair because they have the resources to throw behind making sure that the smaller producers stay in that small spot. And so that's my hope to correct what is an imbalance in that system. That's a great answer. There is so much messed up with poultry production in the nation, but also in Colorado, there the facilities aren't there. The infrastructure is not there for smaller producers to, to even have a shot. So that is an awesome goal. And I, I would love to see that. Like I actually, as a producer myself, would need that kind of service. So that's awesome. Banu, you are interested in language and advocacy in many different realms. But one thing you're really passionate about is healing intergenerational trauma through growing food. So can you tell us more about your relationship to land and how you see it being a healing mechanism for people? Thanks, Taylor. That's a great question. <laughs> when I think about like re- my relationship to land, I really reflect on land pedagogy, literally learning from the land and building a knowledge base that has been there for a millennium, actually, and passed down through our ancestors who provide us with that wisdom. So, I mean, it's inherent in nature. My mother gave that lesson to me and it was passed on to her from her grandmother. And it provides us the space to be compassionate, you know, by offering our communities with the skills to build new connections and imagine new worlds by learning from our greatest teacher, which is Mother Nature. I believe that when we established a a reciprocal, regenerative relationship with land, we heal ourselves because we put ourselves in a position to be stewards of the land instead of takers or destroyers of it. When we are put into these like stewarding roles, not only do we learn to plant a seed, but we become responsible for another life. We become invested in how that life grows and thrives. It feeds us sustenance in so many ways. That plant, if you want to say, is really dependent on us. And in return, 
provide sustenance for us. And so that act alone gives us the foundation for us to be parents, caregivers, you know, teachers. And by learning how to care for a plant, we can extend that love and care not only to ourselves, but to others and truly see each other's humanity. I know we talked before, you said your family has lived all over the world, but they had a property in Fort Collins they had to sell. And, and so how do you see yourself relating to land? How would, what would your ideal relationship be with land? Do you want a farm? Do you want a garden? What, what does that look like for you? Well, I'm hoping on getting land. Yeah, we were really devastated when we had to sell our land. We had an acre up in Fort Collins, like literally across from Horsetooth Reservoir. But the really crazy thing was that Fort Collins ended up being on the list of like the top 10 places to to live. And the property value like literally doubled. So our property taxes doubled and we couldn't keep up with it. It was just since we're in a social economically disadvantaged category, if you want to call it that, we couldn't keep up with it. And then there was so much gentrification going on in the area it just made it really difficult for us to keep up. And so when my mother got sick, we had to make sure that we had insurances that we could be able to cover her medical costs. And if anything happened, funeral costs. And that is exactly what happened. We lost her earlier this year. And I can't even begin to tell you what it costs to just <laughs> to do a funeral. It was, yeah, it was a lot. But not only that, we had to actually pay more for water access to the land than the actual property value because the main water extension was across the highway and we had to bore under the highway and it was going to cost more than what the actual property was worth. And we just, yeah, we were just not in a, a position to be able to do that. So yeah, that really put us between a rock and a hard place. We just couldn't keep up with all of the costs. So we had to sell it. And that really devastated me because land is everything for a farmer. And one thing that I learned from another farmer was that a land is a desert without water. So without water access and without land, I couldn't continue to live that dream of providing a healing sanctuary for my nonprofit. So my nonprofit is called Sacred Eco Center, and sacred stands for Seeding Ancestral Community Relationships Education. And one thing that I learned from my elders, we work with a group of grandmothers down in New Mexico, the... Um, Path of the Jaguar School. Two of the grandmothers are indigenous, and one of them is a PhD woman who works with domestic abuse, violence, and drug addiction. And they created an indigenous school. So what we do is we collaborate with them and we take a group of people. We just actually did this in August. And we took a group of people down there where we had a retreat it was a healing ancestral trauma retreat where we healed the land. And in that process, we also heal ourselves. And it was a five-day intensive, and it really helped me process my mother's loss because I was so connected to her and, and all of the lessons that she taught me about being connected to land. It, it really helped heal that spirit wound that I had, and it even motivated me more to continue to do the work that we're doing. 
I really believe that land is the key for us to really heal ourselves because we have been so disassociated from it, from all of the production model or thinking in regards to how we grow food. So, Oscar, you worked as an urban vegetable farmer in Denver, and you found that there was so much more about farming that you wanted to understand. And you called yourself a quote-unquote landless farmer, looking for ways to support other operations while helping the Mile High Farmers chapter. Can you tell us more about your story and some major takeaways from your urban farming experience? Yeah, definitely would love to. I would first like to note that I guess my land journey really begins before I even came back to the land myself. My family is made up of, of agriculturalists, not of landowners or business entrepreneurs, but ancestrally, we were farmers back in Mexico. And just due to the economic drop and globalism, you know, we were driven away from that form of sustainability and needed to find other ways to sustain our communities as well as ourselves, our families. You know, and there goes the classic narrative of, you know, the immigrant journey where my grandparents had to come to the States and work as undocumented workers in the fields. And, you know, their story is a similar story that we hear one today of being exploited, underpaid. Um, and since they didn't have a visa or citizenship, those conditions were a lot more extreme for them. So for my parents, what that looked like was getting higher education and the highest that they were able to go was high school, which was common for that generation. And it continued as to be as such for myself. And they wanted me to go further, which I was able to go to university. And ironically, I kind of came back to this conversation and this narrative in, you know, respects of self-discovery as, you know, as a young individual should, which looked like questioning, what does it look like to be a part of your urban agricultural scene. That being a very specific question, but what does it look like to be a part of your food system was the question that was posed to me, one of which I was able to dive into more and, and understand more when I was able to join a minor program at the university, a community food systems minor program, where I was able to learn more about the food system, specifically under a equity and radical racial lens, one of which that I felt very called to as a part of my own story, since that that was my story. We were removed from land. We didn't necessarily have a choice of that at all whatsoever, which is kind of the the confusion that like, no, there was a choice, but there really wasn't. And so it's part of my my land journey to have, you know, reclaimed this story for myself, one of which removed me from land and I think even further explains the, the landless farmer narrative that I have continued to paint for myself. And well, luckily through this this program, I was able to begin to volunteer with a farm on a small scale urban agricultural setting. And from volunteering, I was able to then develop my skills and become part of the farm team, later become a farm manager of a one acre site and then continued to develop my skills and was able to then manage a two acre site. So that's where I ended up coming back to land and, and considering and reclaiming that title as a farmer. And as I discovered like the many ways to farm, not just vegetables or flowers or animals, cultivation is a term that you can apply to many different areas. And, you know, as my own entrepreneurial spirit kind of grew to figure out ways to find land for myself, I, I found it necessary for me to dive into this this question of like, what does it actually mean to acquire land since 
I had discovered that just having access to land, having a place to develop these skills, not only develop my skills, but it developed the resiliency of my general community. I was able to learn what it meant to feed my community, not only myself, but everyone who surrounded me. There's always food that's in abundance at a farm. There's much to be shared. And more than just like sharing food, it was it was sharing values. And that's really when like diving into that, that idea, I was pursuing like what it meant to support other organizations who are also having these similar values of what it meant to put farmers first. And that looked like joining Mile High Farmers, which is a regional farmer advocacy group, specifically trying to change the narrative of the front range here. And it's made up of, of small scale local farmers here in the front range. And we seek to just be in community with one another by sharing these radical ideas of what it really means to change the, the narrative of what it means to be a farmer. And the ways that we were able to do that was doing yearly equity challenges through the New England Food Solutions Food Equity Challenge. And we were able to host facilitation spaces to be able to continue the conversation of what these questions were posing to us and what it brought up for us and really trying to also change our leadership organization as well, and specifically putting people of color in those positions of leadership, including myself and and my secretary of the Mile High Farmers. So not only was it through advocacy and like finding an advocacy group that I was able to lean into how do we support um, farmers in general on a policy level, but also on a community scale level as well. Um, Some real major takeaways is that it's not easy. Not only is it not easy on the physical body, but it's not easy on the time aspect, time management aspect, especially as a person of color who has so many um, financial barriers to have to surpass. You know, I have all the same barriers that I, that any individual faces, like the cost of living as it relates to housing and food and so on and so forth. But then those barriers are increased as it relates to having um, access to like the job industry and so on and so forth. And so some major takeaways was the fact that farming was not going to be financially sustainable at all whatsoever. The reason why I consider myself a landless farmer right now is because I'm seeking to cultivate my skills and community in which I can try to, in the long run, find land eventually, but not through the classic narrative of like, what's on the real estate market, I can pay, you know, X thousands of dollars in order to access land. And that's not really the the land journey I want to have, um, especially because of the exponential barriers that I have to face since I don't have access to that long-term generational wealth. Not finding land under the classic narrative of like being an individual um, landowner and hopefully it being more of a collective opportunity. So yeah, that brings me to the National Young Farmers Coalition Land Advocacy Fellowship that all three of you are in. And so tell me, what is the purpose of the Land Advocacy Fellowship with Young Farmers? And what does it mean to you? Tanisha, do you want to start? Sure. So the Land Advocacy Fellowship is a two-year advocacy and leadership fellowship for current and inspiring young farmers and ranchers. Together, we will build momentum to shift power to advocate for policy change and the 2023 Farm Bill that elevates equitable and affordable access to land. The fellowship is part of the National Young Farmers Coalition One Million Acres 
for the future campaign. It's an in- initiative to ensure that land is equitably transitioned to the next generation of farmers by changing policy in the 2023 Farm Bill. So this partnership between the National Young Farmers and individuals like myself allows us to use our voices to speak with organizations like the USDA and congressional members about our initiative to get a result. Um, Personally, gaining access to land has been the largest struggle for me. I have a business plan and even many aspects of operational things documented, but I have no place for my operation to exist. Like I said, I would like to operate here in Colorado because like I said, I've grown my family here. I put down roots here. It's important for me to be a part of a community that needs what I have to offer. And so I know what it's like to struggle, especially from hunger. And I'm sure my neighbors who are in similar situations like myself. I'm not putting everybody in that category, but the individuals who do face food insecurity know what it's like to have to pinch pennies to try and get a meal on the table. We have to be able to eat. And so I want to be able to help my neighbors who face this struggle by offering them staples like eggs and poultry that's raised responsibly and affordable to all. That's great. That was really well put. Banu, did you have any thoughts about what this fellowship means to you? Absolutely. I really feel like the purpose of the Land Advocacy Fellowship is to provide a path towards more equitable land access for BIPOC and young farmers. It addresses this like systemic challenge by securing more land access to otherwise marginalized farmers. For any farmer, really, of course, you know, land is everything. What that means to me, you know, both as a Black and Asian farmer, is a form of fighting for some type of reparation, a small one, but one step closer towards healing that transgression of stolen land. When I think about like my mother, because she's a generational farmer from South Korea, I think about all of the Asian American farmers that contributed to the agricultural history of of the United States. And they have been long taken for granted, even though they directly changed the whole West Coast agricultural landscape with their deep knowledge of irrigation and innovation and growing high quality fruits and vegetables. But they were restricted from land ownership too, due to the alien land law from 1913. So all of this working towards land access It just makes me feel so motivated to make that change for equitable stewardship of land. You know, it's like, (laughs) I want to say it, but just share, (laughs) just share, you know, I mean, we're all in this together, you know, and it it shouldn't be this way where you have 98% of farmland being owned by white owners, you know, and when, when I think about that, It just blows my mind. And I know a lot of those families that are generational farmers that own that land. I mean, they know. They know that that's stolen land. I mean, it's all stolen land, period. I really hope that this movement for social justice in regards to land access really opens people's eyes up to how much we really need to come together to take care of each other. 
to learn how to repair those past damage that we've done, all of the damage that we've done. So it means a lot to me. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned a couple of statistics. I wanted to talk about this fascinating report, the National Young Farmers Coalition. They released their 2022 national survey report. And for folks listening, this is a really interesting and, and quite frankly, a very beautiful display of data. I recommend folks go and download it from the National Young Farmers Coalition website. But they surveyed young and beginning farmers between December 2021 and April 2022. So this is really recent. And they talked about their challenges alongside a lot of demographic information. Uh, I would love to hear if either of you have a particular statistic that resonated with you, surprised you, what spoke to you most? Tanisha. Yes. I was reading in the report that all of the top challenges reported by young farmers who participated in the survey, they experienced higher rates by young BIPOC farmers, the access to land, access to capital, health care costs, cost of production, access to housing, student loans, they were reported at higher rates as being very or extremely challenging for BIPOC farmers. And that alone just blew me away. That was just a perspective of the small handful of individuals who have been in this game for a while. So they surveyed about 10,000 people. So I don't know how that really breaks down to the population of BIPOC versus everyone else. But I was looking at statistics for myself and I found that in the USDA, they have a census of agriculture that they did. It's called the National Agriculture Statistics Service, NASS. They did a census back in 2017. That was their latest that they actually published. And... They were saying that it's 3.4 million agricultural producers in 2017 at the time. And the demographic breakdown as follows. The whites make up 95.4%. Hispanics, 3%. Indigenous, 1.7%. Black, 1.3%. And Asian, 0.6%. And so when I saw that... And then looking at the study that young farmers did, it's it's still telling the same story. We're not telling a different story. We haven't done anything different, which bothers me. It makes me think of Sisyphus, the guy, a uh, Greek figure who was <laughs> had cheated death. And because he was so crafty at it that he did it once, he did it again, and for his punishment, he was set to push a boulder up the hill to get partway up, and the boulder rolled back down the hill, and he started all over again. And so that's what this reminds me of. It seems as though we're in this cycle that we're just rolling this boulder up the hill, and we're not accomplishing anything. If those statistics are from 2017 and we're currently in 2022 and they still tell the same story, when will the narrative change? When will the change come? Because I'm waiting. 
But you know what? I'm tired of waiting. That's why I put my feet in this water. So I decided I needed to do something. As a future producer, I know for sure that poetry is what I want to be in. And I've looked at around the state of Colorado and I can find some statistics on poultry. So for instance, let's just look at Colorado. I Googled and I found that Colorado has some proud facts from Colorado Proud. They have some fun facts that was published in 2019. According to them, there are 39,000 farms and ranches in Colorado with a total of 31.8 million acres in production. But the number one livestock commodity in Colorado is cattle. But I want to produce poultry, layers, and broilers. According to that same fun fact, 5.1 million layers produce more than 1.4 billion eggs each year. But the meat sector doesn't even make a mark. So like I said, as a future poultry producer, I want to make a mark and exceed it. I don't want to move to another state to make it happen. I feel that this is a community that I live among. The neighbors that I, I enjoy being with, they deserve to have those affordable staples, accessible via a local source by a producer who wants more than just their money in exchange for inferior products. We need to help them tell a different story. It is people out there that want this narrative to be changed for the better. And the National Young Farmers, along with individuals like myself and New and Oscar and the other individuals that are working in the fellowship, we want to tell that story. So those are the statistics that stuck out to me in the, the report that really, really set a fire under me to want to do more than what is being done. Oscar, why don't we pass it to you? Um, both resonating and surprising to me, the statistic that stood out was that 45% of young farmers said that finding available land is extremely challenging, which only made sense as then there was a um, 10% increase as 55% of BIPOC individuals found that to be difficult. And the reason why that resonated with me is that it's not just finding specifically for my urban land access struggle. I feel that is, is resonating for me because I'm seeing such high development in the urban landscape. And as these empty lots or even just dirt lots are being transformed into high rise, um, either businesses or apartment complexes and things like that. Um, it's a real struggle to to really like stay positive around like what does it actually mean to have access locally. We heard this huge trend, you know, popping up in the early, I don't know, like 2000s around like what it means to have local farmers markets and so on and so forth. And I don't really see that being possible or even being possible in places where it really should be I would say like more highlighted, especially in communities of color is what I'm talking about, where they've been further removed from healthy food, from local food, which we understand scientifically to have more, more bioavailability of nutrients, being more nutrient dense. Since it has shorter carbon miles, it's directly correlating to how much carbon is being produced in the atmosphere. As producers, we're able to 
um, sequester that carbon instead and trap that and turn that into a viable food, a resilient resource, and then feed it back to the people who need it the most. Communities who are suffering from environmental struggles, you know, as the population increases, we need to find resilient ways in order to feed our community. And, and that doesn't mean like creating systems, um, food systems that are resilient for to be inviting of of individuals to come into those communities, but it's it's about prioritizing the individuals who have been there, who are still there, and who are being driven out. And so in terms of that statistic, it's really important that we change what that looks like, that we decrease those numbers, and that we, um, when I say we, I'm talking about as a, as a general governance, is that we, we make sure that we prioritize that land is being set aside for community-based projects, and that will always um, be a part of food access, whether it be growing the food on site or at being a food distribution site. But food is a real thing that needs to be accessed, especially local healthy food. Absolutely. Um, the Land Advocacy Fellowship was part of a larger campaign, the One Million Acres for the Future campaign through NYFC. I think what's really cool about this fellowship is I'm seeing that you are all using your voices and supported by the National Young Farmers Coalition with a set of a policy framework for the 2023 Farm Bill, which is really cool because it's like actual tangible fixes or at least trying solutions to address these issues. So can you talk about one or two of these recommendations? Are there any that stuck out to you? Yes, actually, the first one was they were wanting to initiate that USDA would umbrella organization, another organization that would be able to transition land from farmers that are getting ready to tap out of the system to the new farmers that are coming into the system. It's no way for it to really change hands in a way where it won't go to a conglomerate that will build a, another hotel or God forbid, a golf course or something like that. And so trying to keep the land that is agriculturally in production is what they want to do. And so that is really, really important because a lot of the farmers, their children don't necessarily want to go into ag and it's no slight against them. You know, this has been their life and they probably want to do other things and that's okay, but we still have to have individuals who are going to feed people. You know, we can't just allow them to go away and we can't allow that land to go away either. And so that's the thing that's really, really important. How can we transition this land from farmer A who is 75 or hitting close to 80 and can no longer do the things he need to do on his farm anymore to say 20 year old who is just coming, you know, Farmer B coming up and saying, you know, I want to continue doing the work that you're doing. How can that be a bridge? Where is the bridge for that to happen? And so I think they were, the National Young Farmers Coalition was hoping that the USDA would take on this project to to do that particular thing, have a have it staffed in a way that people will sit and do this all day, go around collecting data to say, okay, we have all these farmers here in Colorado. 
they're at this age, they're going to think about tapping out in another year or two if their health doesn't prevent them from doing it sooner or whatever the case may be. And so then we also have these young farmers that match well with these potential farmers that are currently doing what they're doing. Let's see how we can get them to the table and talk to each other. And so that's what that's one thing that really stuck out to me because for me to do the leg work myself, it will take me forever to try and get all of the information gathered, let alone go out and talk to all of these individuals. But knowing that it's an organization that can actually do it, that can staff people to do so would be awesome. And that, and that'll be a resource for the individuals coming in so that they won't have to work so hard at what they already want to work hard at doing, which is being a producer. And so that's the one thing that really stuck out to me that it needs to be a better way to transition land from old hand to a younger hand, like changing of the guards, you know, going from one person who's interested and changing to a person who is also interested that want to continue doing what they're doing in agriculture. Yeah, I see that as a huge problem in our local area. A lot of the kids don't want to take on the properties, so it gets split into a bunch of different parcels and, and gets sold off and developed. Generally, that's what Colorado kind of sells to the rest of the country is like a really great lifestyle and a beautiful place to live. And so, yeah, I think that is so real. That's so needed is more professional expertise in that succession process and those conversations and bringing in members outside the family that might be a really solid asset to the team and training them. And then so that they can start taking on land and responsibility. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think that's really needed. Benu, what was there anything that stuck out to you in, in those policy recommendations? I just think it's hilarious that me and Tanisha think the same way because I picked the same one. That was the one that stood out for me too. I, I really feel like they need to invest in incentivizing the farm transition and preventing this land loss, especially to communities of color. And I'm, I'm just going to just state this really quick, where it says fund training for culturally appropriate technical assistance services. And the reason why I'm saying that is that when we think about food, again, we're going back to this culturally relevant growing of food and introducing more biodiversity into our, our diets. But a lot of times when we think about BIPOC farmers, we grow culturally relevant food, you know, and there isn't a lot of technical assistance in that because we are so used to monocropping, you know, and Tanisha, I just want to tell you that you motivate me so much. I am so glad we are in this together, sister, because to, to even know and understand that we both picked the same thing because that stood out to us, both as being women of color both as being mothers, both as wanting to be in the agricultural industry. We have seen all of this. Like firsthand, we have been witnesses where we have seen 
these farmers who are aging out, who are starting to retire, and a lot of them are like facing health issues, if not financial issues. And it's just so much of a burden, which is another reason why it really truly speaks to the younger generation, their family members, the young people from their family. When they see their parents struggle like this, they're like, why would I ever want to take up the mantle of putting myself in bankruptcy and seeing all of the challenges that my parents went through just to run this farm? I'd rather just go take a job in the city. You know what I'm saying? It breaks my heart because we need farmers. If we don't have farmers, who's going to feed us? And I'm just thinking, like, farmers even understand how important it is to provide not only just for their family, but for the entire community, you know, so they do need to truly invest. When this farm bill comes up next year, they really need to look at everything, everything going forward, because it is not equitable. It's time for change. It is time to start standing up for each other and saying, no more, this is not working anymore for anybody. We really need to start transitioning so that we can be able to build a better, brighter future for the people who are coming into it. Absolutely. Oscar, can you talk about one or two of these recommendations that you see helping farmers like you? Yeah, definitely. Investing in community-led projects that create secure, affordable land access opportunities. Um, like I previously mentioned, land access doesn't necessarily mean to directly equate to ownership, but land access can look in many different ways, especially in urban settings. If we are able to set land aside for community-led projects, it most likely will also correlate to some sort of food access or food production. And there's many models of what this can look like. GoFarm is an example of what it looks like to invest in the future generations of farmers. They provide an incubator program for young farmers and land available in order to begin building these skills. In a similar way that I had access to land to be able to cultivate, develop, and master these skills, I believe that there needs to be more access specifically allocated um, to train the future farmers. But then having land access set aside and having these community-led projects set aside, there can be a lot of ideas such as food hubs and food access locations. And so of course, it's going to be a struggle, but if we have 10 individuals who are seeking to develop their skills and they're able to successfully produce a certain amount of weight, then we need to make sure that that food then can go to communities that need to be prioritized. I want to thank you all so much for being on our podcast. It was just such a pleasure to get to know you and, and hear you speak about things you really are passionate about. I always love to do that. So best of luck with the rest of the fellowship. Thank you. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you for having us, Taylor. Really appreciate all of this and putting it all together. Thank you so much to our three guests for joining us today. If you would like to learn more about the National Young Farmers Coalition, you can go to youngfarmers.org. And you can also find them on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Young Farmers. And be sure to check our show notes today. We're going to include a ton of links from today, including the National Survey Report and the One Million Acres for the Future campaign. So be sure to check that out. 
Kivira Coalition has spent decades building a network within the regenerative agriculture community, and we love to share job, internship, and apprenticeship opportunities with our community through our podcast and our monthly newsletter. If you'd like to learn more about the NAP program in preparation for our applications opening on November 1st, we'll have a NAP 101 Zoom call on November 9th from 6 to 7.30 Mountain Standard Time. We'll go through the requirements of the program, websites of hiring, and answer any questions. To register or find out more, visit kiviracoalition.org slash events slash NAP 101 NOV9. Roberts Ranch in Colorado is hiring a grazing manager responsible for moving animals, building and deconstructing temporary electric fence, adjusting herd movements, recording herd movements, and other miscellaneous ranch-related tasks. To find out more, email becky at leachman.com. A historic farm in Virginia's Blue Ridge Mountains is looking for a caretaker. This person should share Kivira's agricultural perspective and regenerative vision, and the goal would be to provide free or discounted housing in exchange for a defined amount of caretaking, plus the use of the land for the caretaker's own pursuits. If you're interested, email elliotgarber at gmail.com for more information. The Colorado Department of Agriculture is looking for a specialty crop and next-gen grant specialist. This position will be responsible for assisting the specialty crop and next-gen program manager to administer the federal-funded specialty crop block grant program and two state-funded next-gen initiatives. The position will provide day-to-day operational management of the next-gen ag leadership grant program and the agricultural workforce development grant program. You can find out more at governmentjobs.com. Kivira's Regenerate Conference is being hosted in Denver this year at the National Western Center, November 2nd through 4th, 2022. Check out regenerateconference.com for a full lineup of speakers, webinars, social events, and more as we explore the theme, Cultivating Restorative Economies. Every month, we include job postings in our monthly newsletter. Visit kiviracoalition.org to sign up. To view a copy of this month's newsletter or any previous ones, visit kiviracoalition.org slash newagrarian slash resources. Have a job opportunity to share yourself? Send it to newagrarian at kiviracoalition.org so we can include it in our next newsletter and podcast. Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, a podcast production of the Kivira Coalition. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. Become a Patreon supporter by visiting kaviracoalition.org slash podcasts. We'd also like to thank Kavira staff members, Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Mulia, Lynn Whitbeck, and Caroline Caldwell for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel-Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the land.